0: And right now, we're just going to have a word of prayer over our kids before they head to kids' praise. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the redemption that we find in Jesus Christ. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord but he who has clean hands and a pure heart? And you are the one that grants that to us by the blood of Jesus. Thank you for regenerating our hearts and making them alive. And thank you for washing us clean And though we are still being sanctified legally, we stand before you as if we have never sinned. Justified. Complete in you. Thank you, Lord, for the great blessing of salvation. There is no greater blessing that we experience and that we taste every single day. We're ignorant to so much of it. But I pray, Father, for these children to know you and to love you And to reject the lies of the world who tell them that there is hope and joy found in other places and in created things. And that they would find their hope and joy in you. And that as things get hard in our nation and as Christian growth moves to South America and Central America and Asia and Africa... And it becomes hard sledding in places like England and America. These children will need faith, the faith we have sung about this morning. And so I pray you would grant it to them. And I pray that you would be with our Kids Praise teachers this morning as they pour into them. Bless this generation. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Our kids are going to head out with the Kids' Praise folks right now. And as they do, just a reminder to you of why we're doing this. We want our kids to be able to learn how to worship with us. And so uh, they'll be joining us K through 4 during this time. And then they will head to Kids' Praise when uh, whoever gets up to preach gets up to preach. Uh, Fifth graders are remaining in with us because we see that 10-year-old year year as a time to really transition into uh, learning how to be in worship and sit through sermons and those sorts of things. Uh, This is not a situation where we are moving pawns so that ultimately we can remove kids' praise, okay? That's not it. We're not a family-integrated church, meaning we don't do family together all the time. We're a multi-generational church. And because we are a multi-generational church, uh, our kids are going to keep going to kids praise during the sermon if our parents choose to make that choice. If you like to keep your kids in with you, you are certainly welcome to. As I always tell everyone, I don't hear your kids when I preach. I only hear mine, okay? So... um, Yes, if you have any other questions just about uh, why the kids are in here with us during uh, the worship portion when we are singing, the singing portion of our worship, uh, because it's all worship, uh, but the singing portion, please just come and talk to me. I'd love to answer any questions that you have. On February 4th, 1555, they came to get John Rogers. You know John Rogers. You met him back in July when I preached through the life of William Tyndale. He was the chaplain to the English merchant's house in Antwerp in Belgium where Tyndale lived and worked before his arrest. He's the man that rescued Tyndale's work. After Tyndale was arrested, he preserved it. He published it in the Matthew Bible along with the work of Miles Coverdale. Well, Rogers was in trouble in 1555 with Bloody Mary, the brutal daughter of King Henry VIII. He was to be her first Protestant martyr burned at the stake. After Henry died on January 28, 1547, his son Edward VI ascended to the throne. His son Edward was the same age as my son Everett, nine years old, and he was an ardent Protestant. Edward had convictions, and so his rise to the throne represented a distinct change in England. Before, England was pretty much Catholic, just no longer a part of the Roman church so that Henry could do what Henry wanted to do. But suddenly, the land of the rose, which had been under the thumb of Henry's adjusted Catholicism, was a bastion for Protestantism in Europe. The fires that had been burning in Germany and Switzerland and Belgium, they had spread into England. But this Protestant boy king only reigned for six years. He had an early death. And knowing that death was coming, he tried to keep his Catholic sister off the throne by devising a plan with his cohorts to crown Lady Jane Grey. Now, Lady Jane Grey was pretty reluctant because she was well aware that Mary was the rightful heir, but she accepted it, and she asked God for strength and guidance. Nine days later, Mary marched on London, sending Lady Jane Grey and her husband and her father-in-law to the Tower of London, and... The day that Mary had Lady Jane Grey killed for being a usurper, she recited Psalm 51 and then said, do it quickly. Tough woman. This was just the start of Mary's terror. She would take one year on the throne to lull the nation into a sense of false security She sold everyone on a unified Catholic England before she began to systematically hunt down and kill those who rejected the Roman mass. She would have at least 288 Protestants burned at the stake. It was probably more. At least 100 more died in prison before they could even be taken to the stake. The records show that in 1555, 71 were burned. In 1556, 89 were burned. In 1557, 88 were burned, and in 1558, 40 were burned. Arrests and trials and retrials and executions. She killed the most important religious leaders of the English Reformation. We'll talk about one this morning, but she also killed businessmen and farmers. Blacksmiths, beer brewers, lawyers, servants, couriers, Woolmakers, wheelmakers, merchants, tanners, sawmakers, ironmakers. In other words, people like you, just everyday people who held to their Protestant beliefs. They proclaimed the Bible as their authority. They proclaimed salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And they refused to accept the Roman Catholic dogma regarding the Mass. Mary was so brutal, she had 54 women burned, and unspeakably, four children. But the first one that she killed, the first Protestant to be burned, the first Marian martyr, was John Rogers. Rogers is a fitting parallel to the man in our passage this morning. John Rogers is the first Marian martyr. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. If you remember the last time we were in the book of Acts together, we saw Stephen on trial for blasphemy. And this faithful brother has been accused of being anti-law, of being anti-temple, of being a blasphemer of the Lord himself. But as he was on trial, he did not endeavor to defend himself. He defended the gospel. He didn't try to clear his own name. He confronted the hard-heartedness of the men on the convicting council. If you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how these were men who were spiritually lithified. Their hearts were hard because years of rejection of God's truth, years of rebellion against God's truth, Years of rejecting God's prophets and God's signs of the coming Messiah, it had made their hearts hard. And then their generation rejected the Messiah himself. Here were the the stinging words from Stephen that ultimately will lead to his death. They were going to kill him anyways. He might as well say what he needs to say. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you received the law, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And this morning as we reach the text, they've come to get Stephen. Just like they would come to get John Rogers 1,500 years later. And what we see this morning in Stephen's life is that the man who was one of the prototypes for deacons is the prototype for martyrdom. We'll work through this passage and I'm going to compare the deaths of Stephen and John Rogers. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that outside of theology of the Bible itself, church history is the second most important thing a Christian should know. And so if you've wondered, why has Pastor Michael been injecting history into these sermons this year? It's because with what is going to come at us in the coming generations in this nation, we better know who came before us. And we better know what it takes to stand and what it means to have steel. And I don't want us to be ignorant of our history. I spent way too long as your pastor being ignorant of history. And so I want to bring it now to you. And this morning we will look at Stephen and John Rogers together. Let's pray for God's help. Father, your word is our life and our authority. And in your word this morning, you show us what it might look like to be faithful. As I'll say later, chances are the people in this room will not die a martyr's death. The overwhelming majority of Christians who have lived throughout the ages have not died martyr's deaths. It's not something you require of us for salvation, a, a martyr's death Uh, It's not something that we should go and seek out even. And yet, there's a faithfulness in these men that we are looking at this morning that we need, Lord. That we need. And a lot of the stuff that we spend our time hemming and hawing about and worrying about, it's fairly meaningless. What we see in this passage this morning is a man in Stephen who was willing to die and pay the ultimate cost because he found the thing of ultimate worth the kingdom and the king who rules it and i pray father that even though we may not die a martyr's death may not that we would have the same love the same passion the same consuming fire, the same steel, the same faithfulness, the same perseverance as a Stephen and as a John Rogers. So speak to us this morning as your church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I love what Pastor Tom did a moment ago. Can we stand in, the reading, in honor of the reading of God's word? Acts 7, verse 55. Verse 54, I'm sorry. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. You may be seated. This is the Lord's word the response to Stephen's speech is one of blind rage. It's an abnormal level of anger here. It, it would almost be comical if we were not headed toward a bloody murder of a godly man. They hear these things and they are enraged, and the original language, the word enraged literally means cut to the heart. It's a different type of cutting than the one we saw in Acts 237. If you'll remember there as Peter preaches, Luke says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That was a cutting that led to repentance as Peter preached the gospel at Pentecost. These men, uh, Those men there, they heard Peter's words, they repented, they were baptized into Christian brotherhood. But this is a cutting here that has led to a feverish rage. Matthew Henry commenting on this said their guilt stung them to the heart and they sought relief in murdering their reprover instead of sorrow and supplication for mercy. They grind their teeth at Stephen. That is the anger of hell. It's the fury of hell when you gnash your teeth. Luke 13, 28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. Don't miss the connection between Luke 13, 28 and the gnashing of teeth here in Acts 7. Stephen has just told them that their rejection of the Word of God, their rejection of the prophets of God, and ultimately their rejection of the Messiah of God has hardened their hearts, has made them a stiff-necked people, a people who are uncircumcised in the heart, meaning they do not have the faith of Abraham, therefore they stand outside of God's promises to Abraham. And like those who fail to enter into the kingdom of heaven through the narrow door, they will gnash their teeth in eternal punishment. And so here, it's a little preview of the fury of hell that they have in their hearts as they gnash their teeth at Stephen on earth. They grind their teeth in a hellish anger over the truth about the state of their hearts. But Stephen is not like them. He stands in contrast to them. He is not full of rage the way that they are. He's full of the Spirit. And he is on the precipice of death. And yet he looks to heaven. And he looks to heaven and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Standing at the right hand of God. Why is Jesus standing? This is not his usual position at the right hand mark fourteen verse sixty two and Jesus said, "I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven luke twenty two sixty nine but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of god matthew twenty six sixty four Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The theological term that we use to talk about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God is the session of Christ. Jesus' session, him being seated at the right hand, was predicted in the Psalms. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to Adonai. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And in the New Testament, we are urged to look to him seated there to set our mind on the things that are above, knowing that when he gets up and he returns, we will also appear with him in glory. Colossians 3 verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But Christ is standing here. This is how Stephen sees him, not in session seated, but standing and I believe, we, we don't know for sure why Jesus stands, but I believe in light of Jesus' own words that this is an acknowledgement of Stephen. Stephen has not acknowledged himself before the council. Didn't even defend himself. I know that's my knee-jerk reaction when people bring accusations against me. I want to defend myself. That's not what Stephen does. He doesn't seek to defend himself at all. Stephen acknowledged Christ. Stephen heralded the truth of the Scriptures and pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus promised that he would acknowledge those who acknowledge him in the midst of the enemies of the gospel of this world. In Matthew 10, verse 32, he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. That's a verse that is referring to our eternal reward as faithful believers The eternal reward we will receive from Christ. But Stephen gets a taste of it even before he dies. Jesus stands. He gazes upon his servant Stephen, this deacon, in approving acknowledgement of him. And in verse 56, Stephen describes what he sees to his onlookers. He says, and behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now that's it. They've had enough. Hearing this young man claim that he has seen the realm of glory break through the realm of earth, and that Jesus, the Son of Man, is standing at the right hand of God, that's too much for them. And it's the use of the term Son of Man that's really set their heads on fire. It's a direct reference to Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is Stephen saying, I see Daniel, son of man. It's Jesus, the King of glory, the Son. He stands at the right hand of God. They have accused him of blasphemy. And even though he has said nothing blasphemous and he is absolutely right about what he sees, in their minds, this is all the proof that they need. And so mob rule takes over. This council doesn't even have the power to put him to death. We know that from Jesus' trial. Pilate said to the council, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. But at least some of the group here bands together and they cry out with a loud voice and they take the law into their own hands. They put their fingers in their ears and they run at him like children. Is this not the way that children act? After the third time you tell them to clean their room and they know that there may be a high level of discipline coming their way, they stick their fingers in their ears and they run and shout, or it's the way children act when one of their friends is saying something to them that they don't want to hear. Richard Baxter says that if you could see yourself when you were angry, you would see how ugly your face is and you would never want to be angry again. I love that. That's just practical help if you struggle with anger. Anger makes you ugly, man. Nobody ever saw somebody's face distorted in anger and was like, oh, man, look at them. They're so handsome. What a pretty woman that is as they're screaming in traffic. Absolutely not. It steals away the beauty that God has given you. So don't be angry. These men are made ugly and childish by their anger. There's no verdict in this kangaroo court here, they just take vengeance. Into their own hands, they take Stephen outside of the city to stone him. That's the only lawful part about this, and it's really not because he doesn't deserve to be stoned. Bring out of the camp, Leviticus 24, 14, the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. So they're taking him outside the camp, they're taking him outside the city. Lawful in terms of following the letter, but there's no justice here. And the pride that is leading them to this murder is an abomination to God, and it is a transgression of God's law at every point. This is unlawful murder. That's what this is. Stephen is being killed in verse 59. He cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then just before he dies, he falls to his knees and he prays for his killers. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How much is Stephen mimicking his Messiah? He does it in the giving up of his spirit. Remember in Luke 23, 46, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And so he dies in the manner of his Savior, and he prays for the forgiveness of his enemies, the very enemies who are killing him, just as Jesus did. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he is squaring off with death itself, Stephen does not flinch in faithfulness. He is Christ-like to the very end. As rocks are pelting him, And when I say rocks, don't think of pebbles. Think of big, flat stones that have the ability to crush a man's bones. And indeed, his bones would have been cracking and breaking. His teeth would have been busted. And in the midst of this, he cries out to his master. And he pleads for the Lord's mercy for his murderers. And with that, Stephen becomes the model example of Christian martyrdom. And he gains a worthy place in redemption history as the first one to die for the name of Christ. Notice that as the men removed their garments so that they would be less constricted as they cast their stones. They lay those garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then in chapter 8 verse 1 it says Saul approved of his execution. This is Saul of Tarsus. The church's number one persecutor, he's a terrorist, he's a hound ravaging the church, a brute doing the bidding of Satan. And by God's grace, this persecutor will become a preacher, and he will become the main character of the second half of Acts, not because he's going to continue to breathe out murderous threats against the church, but because the Lord Jesus will save this terrorist and make him a proclaimer and make him the apostle to the Gentiles. He goes from the architect of threats against the church to being an apostle of the church. Saul of Tarsus is our brother, the apostle Paul, the author of half of the New Testament, maybe more depending on your opinion on Hebrews. I don't think it was him, but maybe you disagree. The most important missionary in church history, we're here today because of the labor of this man. But before he was a missionary, he was a murderer. And he stood over Stephen's death. Fast forward 1,500 years. After rescuing William Tyndale's work and publishing it, after having taken a wife in Belgium, After spending time in Germany, studying under Martin Luther's close friend and top pupil, Philip Melanchthon, John Rogers came back to England in 1548, ready to help the Protestant boy king, Edward VI, with his revolution. He would work with Tyndale's old college friend, Thomas Cranmer, and others to bring about a golden age of Protestant worship in England. At least that's what they thought. But it was all cut short by Edward's death. And by Mary's ascending to the throne, all the Protestant dreams came crashing down as England was to be made Catholic again. But John Rogers did not take this lying down. He went to Paul's cross. Brother Tom, maybe someday you can take me to some of these places. He went to Paul's Cross, an open-air preaching site outside of St. Paul's Cathedral where he was the divinity lecturer, and he celebrated Mary's crowning with a sermon. He commended the crowd to stay with Edward's Protestant ways. He denounced the Pope and superstitions as having no biblical grounding. And as he's preaching, pamphlets are being handed out telling the people to remain Protestant. Do not go with Mary's Catholicism. Resist Mary. The ground, they say, was covered with these pamphlets by the time he was done with this sermon. And Rogers' involvement in all of this would get him arrested. As soon as Mary gets to the throne, John Rogers is arrested. And like Stephen, he has taken the trial. And he is asked if he believes the sacrament of the Mass is the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. This was the whole issue. Transubstantiation, the Catholic dogma that says when the priest blesses the mass, it actually becomes the the body and blood of Jesus. And John Rogers rejected this, and he rejected it on the basis of what we just talked about, the session of Christ. He said, no, Jesus' body and blood is seated at the right hand of the Father, and if his body and blood is seated at the right hand of the Father, then it is not in the hands of Roman priests. And Roger said, until the second coming happens, the body of Christ will not be on earth again. After a brief time, he is charged with heresy. He is stripped of his position as the divinity lecturer at St. Paul's. He is placed under house arrest. And that's where he remained. But in January of 1554, the Bishop of London took him to Newgate Prison. He is separated from his wife, who is pregnant, and from his other ten children. And he is placed behind bars with other Protestant preachers. In December of that year, through a whole year of being in prison, Parliament passes new laws saying, if you don't hold to the Roman Catholic teaching, you will be put to death. And that means that all those men who have been sitting in prison for that year at Newgate, they will die if they do not recant their Protestant beliefs. And the first one arrested is the first one marched before Harry's, uh, uh, Mary's hatchet man uh, a month later. Stephen Gardner. He was Mary's muscle. And so Rogers stood before him. Formal charges of heresy are brought against him. He's condemned to death for preaching against the mass. But Rogers stands firm. They're going to burn him at the stake. But like Stephen, he will not defend himself. He has nothing to recant. He has spoken the truth and he will not apologize. And so on February 4th, 1555, they came to get William Tyndale's good friend, John Rogers. He said, can I have a final meeting with my wife? They said, absolutely not. He had not seen her for over a year. He had never seen the son that she had been pregnant with when he was taken away to Newgate that had now been born. When it came time to march him to the stake, they marched him right past his wife, Adriana and his 11 children. The son he never met was literally nursing at her breast. There were a few people in the crowd who started to mock him. But quickly, the Fox's Book of Martyrs records how the mocking was drowned out. His own kids started yelling, stay strong dad, don't recant dad. His church members started to yell for him, die in strength. Others applauded him. One historian said he had so much support you would have thought that he was marching down the aisle to get married, that it was his wedding day and in many ways it was. Because he was going to die and he was going to go meet the bridegroom. Others were watching intently. This was the first of Mary's convicts. What's he going to do? Is he going to back down? At the stake, the sheriff asked him, Would you revoke your evil opinions of the sacrament? And Rogers spoke loudly so all could hear, That which I have preached I will seal with my blood. Mm. You are a heretic then, said the sheriff. That shall be known at the day of judgment, Rogers said. And then the sheriff, again, like a child, says, I will never pray for you. And Rogers, in the spirit of Christ and in the manner of Stephen, said, but I will pray for you. In fact, he said, I will always pray for you. And then they burned our brother, John Rogers. Fox's Book of Martyrs also describes this moment. And I only share this so you can understand just how persevering this man was. Not to be gruesome. As the flames engulfed his legs and his shoulders, Rogers was stone-faced as if he felt no pain. And then in an act of pure defiance, he took his bare hands and he put them into the flame and he washed them without breaking face. To let everybody know, my hands are clean. And then he took his hands which are now on fire and he lifted them up to heaven and he held them there until they burned down to his shoulders and then the fire consumed his body and John Rogers died as the first martyr under Bloody Mary Tudor. And one day when Jesus Christ returns, the ashes of John Rogers' body which bore the image of the first Adam will be raised imperishable with a body bearing the image of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus." What do we make of this sort of conviction that washes hands in flames? What do we make of this sort of resolve unto death that we see in Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and John Rogers, the first Marian martyr? How do we take what we see in them and apply it to our own lives and our own context? So I want to offer three brief conclusions for us to consider as we go this morning. Three conclusions that I hope will uh, they'll, they'll, they'll compel us. I hope to a, a life that is honoring Christ unto death. And so, number one, we need a martyr's steel for a faithful life. We need a martyr's steel for a faithful life. The reality is, is that you and I live in a land of religious freedom. At this point in this country that we live in, we don't deal with an angry queen who's seeking to uh, kill us for holding to the teaching of the Protestant Reformation. We gathered in my yard this past Wednesday. There was about 70 of our church members there. We sang loud and proud in our neighborhood. We belted out great Protestant truths in melody and lyric. And guess what? Nobody came for us. Not even my, my friends, the Brock Millers across the street. Nobody came for us. But I want you to understand that persecution is beginning to happen here in our nation, beyond just ugly words. In Watertown, Wisconsin, there was a Pride in the Park drag show event in which drag queens were dancing on stage with children. You might use the term twerking, because that's what was happening. A young man was on a public sidewalk outside of the park. With a speaker producing a legal amount of sound, and he was simply reading the Bible over the speaker. He wasn't even reading a passage that had anything to do with homosexuality or sexual sin. He was actually reading a passage about love. And you can watch a video online of police snatching his personal property from his hands. Within a matter of seconds, he is whisked away into a police car and he is gone. Of course, he was released at the police station because he had done nothing wrong, and they knew that. They knew there was nothing they could do about it. They kept his speaker, his personal property. Days later, he went before the Watertown City Council. He did not defend himself. He proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. You can go online and watch it. I challenge you to. His name is Marcus Schroeder, and he is 19 years old. And what you will see is a young man who has steel in his spine. And that's what we're all going to need. I'm not telling you to go out and seek a martyr's death. That's silliness. But I am telling you that we need a martyr's steel. We need some of what Stephen had in his back and our backs. Some of what John Rogers had in his back and our backs. We need that boldness. We need that resoluteness. We need an unflinching conviction that Christ is king and what he says matters. And we're going to go with what he says no matter what. I don't know what's going with the speaker. We'll just let it ride. It's all right. I trust David Pratt as much as anyone. He'll uh, get it to the best place we can. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so that is Paul telling us godliness brings Persecution. And persecution can look different in different contexts. But the further our culture drifts from its roots of Judeo-Christian ethics and the more it barrels full speed into a godless, naturalistic mindset, godliness will only beget more intensified persecution. The evidence of what our culture thinks of biblical values is all around us. Long before church was considered essential, casinos and movie theaters and bowling alleys, and name it, retail stores, and your favorite restaurant. All that was essential, but church was not essential. You remember that during COVID? A movie about child trafficking in 2023 must not be taken seriously because it's made by Christians, no matter how much money or noise it generates. And the Bible will not be read by a teenager on a public sidewalk while children are being sexualized by adults mere yards away. If you go up north to British Columbia, the government in the capital city of Victoria just put out a lovely video. In the video it says most people live their lives as the gender on their birth certificate. But some people must change their gender to be who they really are. The video says there's nothing wrong with being LGBTQ and that those identities are compatible with every religion on the earth. This is the government putting this out. And then they say that those who are LGBTQ, it's a choice, and that it is not something they can turn away from. And then they say there are people who will tell you that this is a lifestyle that can be turned away from, a behavior that can be turned away from. They say that those people might come to you as a pastor, might come to you as a counselor, might come to you as a doctor. They might cloak their speech in prayer or pastoral counseling, but then they put up a little cartoon of these people. And one of the cartoons, it's a little picture of a pastor, and they take the word deceptive and put it right on it. I think we have, do we have the picture? There it is. That's from their video. It's a government-produced video right above us up in Canada. You see that guy right there in the bottom right-hand corner? That's me. That's Pastor David. That's Pastor Ben. They're saying that we are liars. And they have passed laws making it illegal to use prayer and pastoral conversations and counseling to help someone out of that life. They say, if you are doing that, you're harmful to the entire community. You'll end up causing someone to commit suicide. It's a different country. But it's alarming because there are a multitude of people in our in our own nation who want us to be this, and would even say this is what freedom looks like. And as our culture finds you and I more outdated and more outlandish, as they move further and further into a purely secular worldview, we will need a martyr's steel. It's going to cost preachers to say, "I won't do that wedding." It, it may cost a Christian to say, I can't sign that document in the workplace. It may cost our children, who will be even more of a remnant, as the rest grows more and more anti-Orthodox um, and, and anti-Christian values. And So what do we do? Do we get mad? Do we vote against the political party that we dislike? Is that the answer? No. 2 Timothy 3.14 is the direct biblical instruction for you. For right after Paul promises Timothy that godliness will beget persecution, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. Press on in your faith, Timothy. Hold to your convictions, Timothy. Remember the faithfulness of those who taught you these things, Timothy. Don't stop believing God, don't stop obeying God, and don't stop imitating godly people. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy. And he tells Timothy, look, evil people are going to go from bad to worse. They're going to go from being deceived to being deceived. Don't be surprised. When the world just gets worse and they, they just press in harder to sin and rebellion against God, don't be surprised. God told us it would be this way. Instead, hold on. Hold on. Number two, we must love our enemies as we stand strong. See, this is where we got to be careful. There are certain politicians who would have you think it's okay for Christians to talk nasty to people, to be ugly to people, and to respond to our enemies with vitriol. That's being seen as noble now. And since I know I'm preaching to a church that does have a lot of politically conservative people in it, you've got to be careful with that. Politicians on stages in debates do not tell you how to live your life. The Word of God does. And Donald Trump and Joe Biden, do not they, they are not your life and they are not your authority. The Word of God is. And so I just want to make sure that when you hear me talking about these things, I'm not up here pounding the desk for a political party. It's not what I'm saying. There's political action that may need to be taken, no doubt. But I'm talking about you, in your life, remaining faithful and raising up your kids and grandkids to bear the light in this darkness. And to not back down. Because at some point, these political parties, they change with the wind. They're going to go with the masses. The masses are not going with us. And so recognize we might get in a position at some point where everybody's turning the swords against us and everybody's saying these christians are the problem and in those moments we better be christ-like with our opponents this is what jesus taught us you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy that's the way the pharisees were teaching people to act in the synagogues but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you Jesus showed us this love in the most incredible expression, when he prayed for his enemies from the cross. And Stephen followed in his footsteps, falling to his knees, pleading mercy for his murderers, and then Rogers, just like them, looks at the sheriff and says, I will always pray for you. In Stephen's case, his loving prayer was answered in the most dramatic of ways. Don't think that when you pray for your enemies and you love your enemies, you're doing that and and, and you're just kind of throwing those prayers up and nothing's ever going to come from it. I pray for my enemies, but nothing will ever actually happen in their hearts. Their lives will never be changed. No. We pray for our enemies so that God would change our enemies. When Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against him, God answers that prayer in the life of Saul of Tarsus. Listen to how Paul describes his salvation. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Stephen prays for his murderers to be forgiven and not long from that very moment God would pluck up the one who held the coats for the mob and he would save him by his grace through faith and he would no longer hold his uh, Paul's sin against him the sin of Stephen's murder is laid on Jesus at the cross think about that Jesus stands for Stephen but he also dies for Paul who murdered Stephen Jesus received the Father's wrath on Paul's behalf for the death of the first Christian martyr and every other sin Paul ever committed. How deep is the mercy of Jesus for his people? And that brings us to our final conclusion. We need a martyr's steel for a faithful life. We must love our enemies as we stand strong. And number three, we never know who is watching our perseverance. Stephen's life had an effect upon Paul. Acts 22:20-21, and when the blood of Stephen your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Do you see what Paul does there? He takes Stephen's death as he is recounting his life, and he makes it just as much a part of his story as God calling him as the apostle to the Gentiles. Obviously, Stephen's death had a massive effect on Paul. Satan must have thought Stephen's death was grand. He killed the Jerusalem church's star boy, the up-and-comer, the wise deacon who's doing signs and wonders. By the way, God's always got another man ready to go. This deacon dies, another deacon rise up, rises up, and Acts 8, we'll see Philip doing signs and wonders, and he was from the same seven that Stephen was from, uh, elected by the church to help fix the problem with the widows. God's always got a man waiting in the wings. And God in heaven, he took this death of Stephen. He used it to draw Saul of Tarsus into the kingdom. Here's Lorraine Botner talking about how God will use even the sinful actions of man in his all-wise plan. Even the sinful acts of men are included in this plan. They are foreseen, permitted, and have their exact place. They are controlled and overruled for the divine glory. The crucifixion of Christ, which is admittedly the worst crime in all human history, had, we are expressly told, its exact and necessary place in the plan. Stephen's death had its exact place in God's plan. And Paul's conversion is the fruit that fell off of God's ordained vine, and its seed spread throughout the whole world. It's not unlike the results of the death of John Rogers. Stephen Lawson, who might be the, the foremost uh, expert on John Rogers' life, says that as Rogers was at the stake, the other preachers at Newgate Prison wanted to know what was going to happen. Would Rogers stay strong? Would Rogers recant? Men like Hugh Latimer and Thomas Cranmer and Nicholas Ridley, other leaders of the Protestant Reformation in England. And so they wanted to know, what happened with Rogers? And when they were told that Rogers did not recant and Rogers died, it just made them buckle down all the more and say, then we'll go with them. Latimer and Ridley were burned together in the same year by Mary. Before the flame, Latimer said, be of good comfort, Dr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust never shall be put out. This morning we have Protestant man stand in this pulpit who's been a missionary to England since 1983. It is not lost on me. That the wax of his candle and others who have preached the gospel faithfully in that nation were molded and shaped by the death of John Rogers. Latimer was right. The candle has not been put out. The gospel is still being preached. Churches are still being planted. Thomas Cranmer, from his window, watched Ridley and Latimer burn. And it shook him to his core. And he actually recanted his beliefs sad thing but then he went back on his recantation and said you know what actually no I'm a protestant and I'm not backing down so they took him to burn him too and he took the hand that he had wrote his recantation with originally he said burn this first let's speed up the sanctification process here I hate that hand that I recanted with and so go ahead and burn this first who is watching you Who needs to see your perseverance? Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa? Kids and your grandkids need to see you wash your hands in the flame of trials resolved in your faithfulness to Christ. Church members, we need to see one another stand strong when it seems like everybody else is shrinking back. Because it will compel us all to persevere. The reality is is that we're never likely to experience a martyr's death. We're, we're, We're likely to never die by a flame for our faith in Christ. Or to be stoned to death. But may God give us the steel for whatever lies ahead. And may he give us a great love for whoever will oppose us. And may our lives be an example of perseverance that motivate perseverance in others for the glory of God and for his kingdom's advance. You might not die like John Rogers or the dear deacon Stephen, but may we have just a sliver of their impact in our living. And may our numbered days count for Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. For the great cloud of witnesses that we have, for those who have gone before us, for the Stevens, for the John Rogers, for the the Ridleys, for the Latimers, for the Cranmers, I give you so much thanks for the saints that are sitting in front of me, for I know that many of them have had to stand strong for you at different times in their lives, and you have given them the steel to do so, and they've been able to do so. But what lies ahead of us, Lord, we don't know. Lord, I pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ that this nation would never institute laws against just orthodox biblical preaching regarding sexual ethics. But if they do, we can only do what you have called us to do and to preach and to not back down. Our nation might try to write you out of the equation all that they want, but in the church, we know We say yes to King Jesus first and foremost, always. So the world's going to do whatever the world's going to do, Lord. And it'll get as hot as you're going to let it get for us. And it might get so hot that some of us get burned, I don't know. But regardless, give us steel in our backs so that we could stand strong. And for some of us, Lord, we need to start small this morning. We need the steel on our backs just to share our faith with our best friend. Just to go down to, a, to, to Yorktown Beach or to a park somewhere and just to walk up to somebody and say, can I share the good news of Jesus Christ with you? For some of us, Lord, we don't have, we don't have the steel on our backs for that. If we're honest with, with ourselves, we're terrified of doing anything like that. So call us to higher things, God, and don't let us ignore the call. As you call us to obedience in the small things and asking someone if we could pray for them and asking someone if we could share the gospel with them and 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 looking to get in the conversations and turning our whole lives to be on mission and to try to leverage everything that we've got for you. Have us start there, Lord to just take every bit of our lives and say, we're going to leverage it for Jesus. But God, as we live godly in this way, we know Satan's not going to take it lying down. He is a dog that loves to bark. And until the day that you shut him up forever, he's going to bark. And he might even bite. But he can't touch the soul. So let us not fear him or anyone who comes against us. Instead, Lord, as Human enemies press in on us, we will pray for them and we will love them. Steel in the back, love in the heart, and then an audience watching. We never know who might be looking on. Maybe it's another Paul. Maybe it's an apostle to the transgender community. Maybe it's an apostle to the secular humanism community. We never know, God, who you've got watching us. You might just raise somebody up and send them out to see millions come to Christ under their work. So Lord, help us just to be faithful and to trust you and to say our lives are not our own. And they belong to King Jesus. Like Stephen did, like Rogers did. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bam's going to come.